Hi, this is Dr. Edith M. Humphrey, author of Further Up and Further In, Orthodox Conversations with C.S. Lewis on Scripture and Theology. You're listening to Pints with Jack. Dorothy L. Sayers chose to build bridges between Christ and culture, having come to love them both. This is Pints with Jack, Season 6, Episode 36, Dorothy L. Sayers, After Hours with Dr. Crystal Downing. Well, welcome, everyone. Here on Pints with Jack, we're reading our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. And in today's episode, we're enjoying our last episode in our series that we've been calling Jack's Bookshelf, where we've been examining the impact of certain books and writers on C.S. Lewis. We have thus far covered older authors who were long dead by the time Lewis was writing, but today we gladly come to and deal with a contemporary, Dorothy L. Sayers. I picked this quote because it jumped out of me from Crystal Downing's book, and it seems to be so relevant to what we've been talking about this season in Out of the Silent Planet, and also to the larger work of Lewis and Williams and the Inklings, and in some ways the larger work that the Holy Spirit is doing in our culture. And I think that we really need to be creatively in the image of God, building bridges between Christ and culture, and we must love them both following the two great commandments. So that was where that quote came from, and I can't wait, listeners, for you to read uh, this amazing book. In today's episode, you'll discover about one of C.S. Lewis's favorite writers and one of his good friends, and why we dare not overlook her any longer, especially due to her powerful and pertinent voice, which offers so much help to thoughtful people today. And today, I'm gladly joined by Dr. Crystal Downing. She's the co-director of the Marion E. Wade Center, one of the very best places in the entire world. And she's the co-holder of the Marion E. Wade Chair in Christian Thought at Wheaton College, a position she shares with her husband, C.S. Lewis scholar and all-around great guy, David C. Downing. She's a formerly a distinguished professor of English and Film Studies at Messiah College in Pennsylvania. She's written a number of books, including Salvation from Cinema, The Medium is the Message, How Postmodernism Serves My Faith, Changing Signs of Truth, A Christian Introduction to the Semiotics of Communication, as well as two books on Dorothy L. Sayers, one of which we'll explore today, Subversive, Christ, Culture, and the Shocking Dorothy L. Sayers, Crystal Downing. Welcome to Pints with Jack. I'm delighted to be here. It's so great to have you. And as listeners well know, I often say that if I have a mansion in heaven, one door will lead to the kilns, one door will lead to anywhere Diana Glyer is, and one door will lead directly into the Kilby Reading Room at the Wade Center. Oh, wonderful. I just love that place. I've thought about making my text tone the click of the door as you open it, uh, because that is such a glad sound to me over many years. Good. So I think 26 years I've been coming to the Wade Center. Wow. And I always advocate to our listeners that they go. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, about the Wade Center, why folks should come, and why it's one of the thin places for those who are interested in mm. imagination and faith? Mm. A C.S. Lewis collection was started by a Wheaton professor in the early 60s, and he had this sense that this guy named C.S. Lewis might be famous someday because uh, Lewis wasn't really 
welcomed by evangelicals when he first started publishing. In fact, one of the things the way does is sponsor Wheaton scholars to do a series of lectures relating the their discipline to Wade authors. And Mark Knoll, who is on our Wade board, famous author of Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, gave a whole series of lectures about the resistance to C.S. Lewis. But this Wheaton professor, he recognized that what Lewis was doing is significant. So he started writing Lewis and actually started writing him in the 50s. And saving those letters when Lewis died, he wrote and met Warren Lewis, uh, Lewis's brother, and started collecting more. And Warren loved this professor. His name was Clyde Kilby. So we have at the Wade thousands and thousands and thousands of letters by C.S. Lewis. And then Clyde Kilby started thinking, I need to collect letters, manuscripts, first editions by those people who influence Lewis. So we have seven authors, six influencers. And of course, my work is on The Only Woman. We archive Dorothy Sayers. And basically, the Wade Center has the the most comprehensive collection of Sayers materials in the world. Hmm. Uh, So it's a great place to come. But We have researchers who come from all over the world, from Russia, from Japan, from uh, many countries in Europe, because they know the Wade's resources will enable them to do original research and publish a book. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we have a museum that we orient towards all ages, from six to 96. (laughs) And we have the wardrobe that was standing in the house where C.S. Lewis and his brother grew up. It was hand carved by Lewis's grandfather. And we have a statement from Lewis's cousin who said that Jack and Warney as children would climb inside the wardrobe and tell stories. <laughs> so this wardrobe, the idea of a wardrobe opening to another world was generated by this wardrobe that was standing in Lewis's house. <laughs> and on top of that, we have numerous programs for children from preschool up to scholarly lectures for um, anyone who's interested. And For those of you out there, if you want to do research, we do not charge any money. Mm -hmm. You can look at the first, a rare first edition of Tolkien's Hobbit. Mm -hmm. Most of the copies of The Hobbit were in a warehouse that was bombed by the Nazis. Mm -hmm. And we have one of the rare first editions that survived that bombing. And that's interesting because then Tolkien totally revised The Hobbit Mm -hmm. after that. So I could fill this whole hour just talking about all (laughs) the opportunities and uh, fun treats, as we call them, offered Mm -hmm. by the Wade. Well, and and we really could, and we probably should uh, do uh, (laughs) at least an hour or a couple of episodes about the Wade. I think that that would be marvelous. Maybe maybe offer to our Patreon supporters a video tour or something. I remember distinctly my first visit to the Wade in 97 when it was still in Mm -hmm. the corner of Buswell. Mm. And feeling on Saturday morning in that last slot from 9 to 12 that I was running out of time and there was too much. 
And in each of my subsequent visit, dozen visits over the years since then, I start feeling as if I'm running out of time earlier and earlier. And so now about six months before my visit, I start to panic that I am running out of time <laughs> to wade. Uh, the treasure troves are deeper than Moria. And so I, mm. I encourage you that if you're in the Chicago area, take a few hours at least to go survey the place. But I would encourage our listeners, if you have some time or want, need a vacation, look on the Wade website, find out about the resources available at the Wade Center and plan several days. It'll never, ever be enough. Right. Well, today, as uh, as we normally do, we normally toast with scotch, but I think that on the last, one of the last days of Lent, uh, before I'm about to go lead two services for Good Friday, uh, I thought I'd forego the scotch this morning. By the way, I need to forward you a letter from Walter Hooper. I asked Walter what Scotch Lewis drank, and he had a very interesting reply. Um, so oh, I'll send that to you all. Wonderful. I am enjoying um, uh, my favorite coffee from Texas, from H-E-B. It's called The Taste of San Antonio with notes of uh, cinnamon and vanilla. A friend of mine, Steve Beebe, uh, who's also used the Wade resources, told me that Priscilla Tolkien loved that coffee. And so during my last trip over, uh, before both she and Walter died, I brought some to Walter for her. What are you drinking today, Crystal? Well, I tend to prefer coffee-flavored milk, so I make my own <laughs> lattes, nice. and I have a hazelnut latte, and I have this little battery device that whips the milk up, oh, and yeah, then yeah, yeah. I have a pre-made hazelnut that I pour into this whipped milk. Ah, that's great. You've got your own frother. I think that what we should cheers the Wade Center, we should cheers Dorothy L. Sayers, and we yes. should cheers the way that... um. That especially um, your efforts, these efforts champion the undervalued influence of women on the lives of the Inklings and these authors. So, cheers. Cheers. Well, let's do a little Sayers 101. And let me start, please, by expressing my gratitude and admiration for your latest book. Mm-hmm. You share two great gifts with Lewis, in my opinion a clear, strong, engaging, nimble prose. And your ability to entice readers like Lewis did to learn more about the authors you consider. Next, my last class at Northwind Seminary will be on Associates of the Inklings, and there'll be a a Sayers section. And so I can't wait to read more of her. Wonderful. Mostly thanks to you. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. It's it's just great work. And listeners, of course, will have a link to the book. Um, So... Just quickly, in a couple of minutes, if you would, would you give us just a quick thumbnail sketch about who Dorothy Sayers was? Because many of our readers might not be uh, might not be familiar with her. Mm. She was born in 1893, so five years before C.S. Lewis. She was the only child of a rector and his wife, so she grew up in the church. But by her teenage years, she had started to compartmentalize her faith. She uh, was suspicious of people who just went through the motions because it was traditional. Mm -hmm. She got a very prestigious scholarship to Oxford University. And one of the things she liked about her college is it didn't require chapel. So (laughs) after she went down from Oxford and She put in all of the same work that every male at Oxford did, and yet, because she was a woman, Oxford University did not grant degrees to women. They just thought, well, women are just going to be teachers or mothers. They're going to work with children. They don't need degrees. Mm -hmm. And the irony is, 
Sayers went down from Oxford the exact same year as Tolkien. It took Tolkien three different tries to get honors <laughs> on his exams. Sayers got hers in her first try. Wow. And yet she wasn't given a, a degree. So that explains a lot of her feistiness at learn. She just had to stand up for what she wanted. She became famous by inventing Lord Peter Whimsey detective novels. Her first one was 1923, and she quite consciously did not make Lord Peter, a Christian. Hmm. And once again, that's part of her compartmentalizing. She has Peter, he loves the beauty of the literature and the beauty of the church architecture, but he explicitly says he's not a Christian. And Sayers explicitly says she refuses to make a Christian, make him a Christian. Mm -hmm. And then something, and I see this as, as God's work, because she was a best-selling detective novelist mm -hmm. and the third president of London's Detection Society. She was elected before Agatha Christie. People wow. thought she was much more reputable than Agatha Christie at the time. This was 1930s, 1930s in the golden age of detective fiction. But then Canterbury Festival leaders uh -huh. asked Sayers if she would write a play to be performed in Canterbury Cathedral. And that forced her, because it was performed in the cathedral, it was about the history of the cathedral, it forced her to think through how Christianity engages the values she was most passionate about. Mm -hmm. And the values she became most passionate about as she was writing her detective novels was the integrity of work. Mm -hmm. And by writing this play for Canterbury Cathedral, she had to theorize, how does Christianity comment on the integrity of work? Mm -hmm. And she came up with a theory that blew theologians away. They just said, I've heard nobody talk about this before. And her theory that she presents in this play, Zeal of Thy House, is that when we're told in Genesis 127 that we are created in the image of God, male and female created he them, that creativity fulfills the Imago Dei, mm -hmm. which is the Latin for image of God. Mm -hmm. And then just in order to support her play, to advertise her play, uh, Zeal of Thy House, she started writing more and more about theological issues. She just totally gave up detective fiction. Mm -hmm. And she became known as a best-selling author who was grappling with Christian issues. Mm. Mm. And this was, uh, what year was that again? Uh, she was invited to write Zeal of Thy House in 1936, and the play was first performed 1937. So that's right when The Hobbit is coming out. That's as Lewis is putting finishing touches on um, Out of the Silent Planet, which is the book that we're reading this year. And that's a few years after The Inklings have started and Williams and Lewis have gotten together around this time. So this is a really fecund period for Christian imagination. Yes. Yes. Didn't Williams and T.S. Eliot also contribute a play to the, to that series? Yes. T.S. Eliot's famous The Murder in the Cathedral mm -hmm. was 
1935, and then Charles Williams wrote the next play about Thomas Cranmer, mm-hmm. and evidence leads us to believe that it was Charles Williams who recommended to the Canterbury Festival organizers that Sayers write the next play. He was really impressed with one of her Lord Peter Whimsey novels that was set in a church. Mm. Yeah, and we're going to talk a little bit more about kind of her relationships um, and interrelationality between Sayers and some of the Inklings. So thank you for that snapshot. That's great. Tell us just a little bit, just quickly about your first encounter with Sayers and what made you want to write write about her. I had never really heard about Sayers. I was in my early 20s, and I was secretary to the alumni office of a Christian college. And another woman who worked in PR that I had gone to college with, she and I were concerned that there were no courses at this Christian college in women's literature. So we proposed a Jan term course that just met for three weeks that focused on women's literature. We offered to do it for free. How could they turn it down? Mm -hmm. And we were both employed by that time. I was only 23, 24 years old, and they had fired my boss and made me director of the alumni at this college, and they made my friend director of public relations. We were these women in our 20s who were basically (laughs) running PR things. And so my friend, as we prepared the syllabi, she says, oh, we should have a novel by Dorothy Sayers. I go, who's Dorothy Sayers? (laughs) (laughs) And so she gave me my first Dorothy Sayers novel, which was the first Lord Peter Whimsey novel, Whose Body. Mm -hmm. But in terms of research, I only started studying Sayers after I finished my PhD and got my first tenure track job. And then I knew I had a sabbatical coming up. What should I study Mm -hmm. in my sabbatical? Well, my husband was going to this place called the Wade Center to do his (laughs) research on C.S. Lewis. And I decided, well, I'm going to do more research on this interesting woman, Dorothy Sayers. Mm -hmm. And the rest is history. So my first book, that was my first sabbatical project, was my writing performances, The Stages of Dorothy L. Sayers. Okay, great. Well, and for those of you who are interested in, you know, I'm going to, I won't stop flogging the Wade because that's just what I do. Not only is Dr. Downing there, but Marge Mead uh, is another Sayers scholar and she's the associate director of the Wade Center. And so if you're interested in following up, uh, you couldn't find a better place than in Wheaton. Uh, Illinois. Plus, it's a cute little town. Yes. (laughs) So, I've often said here and elsewhere that in terms of Lewis, I think of him as kind of a door, an object worthy of study, worthy even of imitation, but also a doorway. And he has he opens the doors, whether it's in his Oxford History of English Literature mm-hmm. or in his praise of Sayers and Ryder Haggard and E. Nesbitt and Tolkien, of course, um, and so many others. Lewis is a doorway, and I certainly would never have read Sayers or Chesterton or MacDonald or even – I couldn't even get through Tolkien until I understood mm-hmm. that Lewis was playing a collaborative role in the composition. Mm-hmm. And that's what opened the door for me. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of a doorway, and we we try to do the same thing here on Pints with Jack. He's an enthusiastic inter- introducer to other authors, 
that he loved. And I loved the first line of your introduction, the very first sentence of Subversive. You say, when, when Dorothy L. Sayers died in 1957, C.S. Lewis wept. So could you give us just a quick sketch of the, of the bridge from Lewis, with whom our authors are at various levels familiar, to Dorothy Sayers? I mean, what's their connection? C.S. Lewis once wrote that Dorothy L. Sayers was the first person of importance to ever write me a fan letter. Hmm. Unfortunately, that fan letter has not survived. I would have loved to have seen what she wrote. As far as we can tell, it was spring 1941 where she wrote him and he immediately wrote back. And within several months, they had their first meeting. But she loved his problem of pain, Mm -hmm. and she recommends it to others throughout her correspondence. But then in 1943, Mm -hmm. actually it was 1942 when they first wrote each other, her first fan letter, 1943, Sayers radio plays, uh, BBC radio plays about Jesus had been Mm -hmm. published for the first time. And she sent a copy of the publication to Lewis, along with a letter in which she makes up two demons. And so she imitates screw tape letters, <laughs> and she um, has her demon writing to his boss, complaining about his patient, who is Dorothy Sayers. <laughs> and then in her own hand, Sayers adds. The Man Born to be King, this collection of radio plays written by Dorothy Sayers, caused one of the biggest religious controversies in 20th century England. Mm. And primarily, and we can go into more detail if you want, she did not use King James English. And she had her disciples speaking slang. Well, mm-hmm. most of the disciples were working class. Of course, they spoke the slang yeah. of their era. Koine. Right? But, and this was actually a headline in the papers, in London papers, that said, plays about Jesus in American slang. Now, that really did it. American <laughs> slang? How could she do that? This was argued in the House of Lords in Parliament. Mm. Wow. This appalling thing that this woman had done. And luckily, she she stood her ground. She was a strong, strong woman. She had to be. Mm-hmm. And they went ahead with the productions, despite Sayers got hate mail. Mm-hmm. She got uh, threatening phone calls. People were attacking her right mm-hmm. and left. Mm-hmm. But she held her ground. Mm-hmm. And because of that... As she told C.S. Lewis, she got thousands of letters from people who were telling her that these radio plays changed their lives because for the first time in their lives, they understood what the gospel Mm -hmm. message had to do with them. And they committed their lives to following Christ. And these were a lot of people who had been going to church every Sunday because that's just Mm -hmm. what you do. That's tradition. But the language meant nothing to them. So... C.S. Lewis was so impressed by these radio plays that he read them, these plays about Jesus, he read them every year for his Easter devotions Mm -hmm. from 1943 when Sayers sent him a copy until the year he died. 
And not long before he died, Walter Hooper asked him, you know, tell us, we all know about the importance of Barfield and Tolkien and McDonald in your life. Who else was really an important influence on your spiritual life? And he mentioned four people, one of whom was Chesterton and the other was Dorothy Sayers, primarily because of these radio plays that Christians tried to suppress. <laughs> well, um, the Wade isn't going to have any of that. And I am thankfully, because of our Patreon supporters, holding in my in my hand, the latest Wade annotated edition. By the way, if you see anything, there's a, a couple of editions of, of Lewis's works as Wade annotated editions. Splendor in the Dark has David Downing's annotations. And of course, the, the Marvelous Pilgrim's Regress is a Wade annotated edition. The latest Wade annotated edition are those 12 plays of Dorothy Sayers called A Man Born to be King, edited by Catherine Ware, yes. who is also uh, the managing editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture. So once again, listeners, you've got to widen your book budget every time you download yes. a podcast. If you want to know what Lewis was reading for his mm -hmm. devotions while he's writing yeah. um, the Narnia Chronicles. You need to yeah. read Man Born to be King. Yes, absolutely. Love that. I've got an inkling, no pun intended. <laughs> I sometimes, when I'm speaking, get questions. Why wasn't Dorothy Sayers uh, an inkling? And of course, in that horrible, um, I won't even call it a biography, the horrible pastiche of you know, borrowed sources and ignorance, uh, the biography of Lewis by Michael White. He pictures Dorothy Sayers coming and knocking on the door of an Inklings meeting yeah. and having the door slammed in her face, which is just ridiculous Yeah, and completely, completely false. I wonder if you'll reflect on why Sayers wasn't an Inkling. Well, partly she lived in London and Inkling meetings were in Oxford. Mm-hmm. Partly because Oxford at that time, it was a very male-oriented culture. Mm -hmm. After World War I, Oxford retroactively gave degrees to women who had done all the work. And partly that's because during the Great War, women ran Oxford mm -hmm. University because both dons and male students, they were out at the front. Plus, Oxford realized that, wow, women could be a source of income. <laughs> and yeah. I write a little bit about that in the book. But my understanding from my husband, who's a, a Lewis specialist, is Lewis himself liked to keep it male-oriented until Joy Davidman came in his life. And all of a sudden, mm -hmm. he's bringing Joy to the meetings and other people were somewhat upset about that. So, no, she was never invited to an Inkling meeting. But C.S. Lewis um, hosted a reception for Sayers after she started working on Dante. Mm -hmm. And it was their common friend, Charles Williams, mm -hmm. who uh, wrote a book that changed Sayers' life. She read The Figure of Beatrice by Williams, mm -hmm. and that got her interested in Dante, and she taught herself Italian. I mean, this woman was just absolutely brilliant. Yeah. So she taught herself Italian, partly while sitting in bomb shelters during World War II, and then started her translation. Lewis loved her translations, 
And so she was invited to come speak about Dante at both Cambridge and Oxford. And one of the times she was speaking at Oxford, that's when Lewis hosted this reception. Well, and I think that um, sometimes we get this monolithic picture of the Inklings in our heads. And Diana Glyer's work, of course, has been so foundational, the company they keep especially. And I think she convincingly puts the date, the last date, the end date of the Inklings at 1949. Mm. And and I agree, I hold to that. And so people in the 50s and the 60s who claim to have been at meetings of the Inklings are making a grammatical error. They uh, weren't at yeah. Inklings meetings, but they were at meetings with the Inklings, which may have been in Lewis's rooms or in the pub. Right. And so I think I would make that counter distinction. Also, Paul Fittis's magisterial new work on Williams and Lewis uh, is fantastic about tracing some of what goes on amongst the Inklings in the early, uh, the late 30s, early 40s, and kind of points out that sometimes and often uh, an Inklings meeting is just four or five, even during the period which the Inklings are meeting. By the 40s, most of their meetings are behind them. They start in 30, you know, early 30s, I think, right. 33. And if it's Jack Warney and Williams, they called it an Inklings meeting. And usually it was, I don't know if it was ever all 19 that Diana names. And so I don't think it's like this big monolithic secret society group that happened. And so I think it transitioned into something different. And one of the things that I'm doing in my work I hope you'll be glad to know that my uh, my treatise for Northwind Seminary will be uh, several chapters on my long-awaited book, Until We Have Faces. And one of the things that I'll do is look at how Joy Davidman inhabits Diana Glyer's seven collaborative models from Vandersnatch. And so Joy becomes Lewis's last inkling. Mm. She collaborates with him after the inklings have kind of gone away. And so mm-hmm. I don't think it wasn't so much Dorothy not allowed in the inklings, but these kind of different dynamics. Yeah. And again, she may not have ever been in Oxford when they were holding a meeting. Right. Barfield was an inkling, but he was a very occasional attendee because he also lived in London. And Lewis and Sayers collaborated together in a book in after Charles Williams died mm-hmm. to be published by Oxford University Press. Yes. I'm not saying that Lewis was anti-female at all. I mean, yeah. he just was willing to just interact. With, and mm-hmm. I think my theory is that Sayers helped prepare Lewis for Joy Davidman you know, mm-hmm. this this yeah. woman who would talk back to him. Yeah. We have in the published letters of C.S. Lewis, the only letter you have where Lewis starts the letter saying, hey, whoa, is to Dorothy Sayers because she's challenging him mm-hmm. about something that he had written to her. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I think that Lewis, and I think uh, Paul Ford is wise in his companion to Narnia where he looks at Erebus as kind of a fulcrum for Lewis and that his treatment of women from the beginning to the end of his fiction certainly gets more expansive and more generous to the point where you get to, and (laughs) we have a joke on here, uh, Crystal, whenever I mention Till We Have Faces, uh, David and Matt, whose favorite book is The Great Divorce, take a sip of their scotch. So I usually have them hammered halfway through the episode. Um, (laughs) Let's bring that up. 
But um, I think that Lewis grows in his appreciation and his portrayal of strong women. And I think that Sayers, yeah, in some ways opens the door for Joy. And, right. And she comes she comes charging in. Mm-hmm. And we have letters from her. She, um, she would get frustrated with him. And she challenged uh-huh. him. And she has a letter to someone else saying, well, what do you think of C.S. Lewis? I'm afraid he got all his views of women out of Milton. <laughs> and so she recognized problems he wanted her to join a campaign that did not allow women to become priests in the church. Mm -hmm. And she refused. And she said, you know, many women, if they saw your desire to refuse women in those leadership positions, would either laugh out loud or get a faint sniff of drains by which she meant sewers. (laughs) And so she was very forthright. And I think, yes, she helped nudge him towards greater openness. Mm -hmm. And he had to recognize he reviewed her book that theologians encouraged her to write after this play, Zeal of Thy House, where she explained Mm -hmm. her view of the Imago Dei being creativity. Mm -hmm. And because, after all, when we're told we are created in the image of God in Genesis one twenty seven, the God of Genesis 1 is not a judge, is not a lawgiver, is not a redeemer. The mm-hmm. God of Genesis 1 is a creator. And we're mm-hmm. told we're created in God's image. So mm-hmm. that is the God, how God is described in Genesis 1. So she wrote this book, Mind of the Maker. Lewis not only reviewed it, but later in Miracles, he described it as indispensable. Mm-hmm. So she really did mold his his worldview. Absolutely. Well, and one of the things that makes me adhere to Lewis so much is his flexibility. Yes. So he's on record trying to destroy modernist poetry in the 20s, but he likes some of it by the 50s and he grows. He doesn't, He, I think he tries not to be completely hidebound. And of course, it's in his letters, it's in uh, a letter from 1955, right after he has co-authored Till We Have Faces with Joy Davidman, according to some sources. Um, And he writes to Dorothy, one of the kind of, uh, this is the quote that I often refer to when we think about Lewis's relationship and relationships with gender. Um, He says to Dorothy, don't like either ultra-feminine or ultra-masculine myself. I prefer people. Yes. And so I think he kind of grows in that. And this is after... I think after he has fallen in love with Joy Davidman, at least that's the case I'll make. And so he's growing in that. And I think that Dorothy provides a real crucial catalyst for some of that. Right, right. In fact, one of the essays that Sayers published in 1938 was called Are Women Human? Uh Because she just thought in her day, again, here she did better work than most males at Oxford and yet wasn't given a degree. I mean- Women are treated as not, and then she wrote a follow-up essay called The Human Not Quite Human (laughs) for that. So she was serious about these issues. Yeah. Well, your book made me run downstairs and tell my wife that we needed to read more Sayers. And she just started on her Sayers journey by reading Are Women Human a couple of months ago. And so, yeah, we're on our way. We could really go an hour and a half, but there are a couple more questions that I uh, that I need to ask. And listeners, I'm only hastening because it's Good Friday and I have a service to uh, to participate in about an hour. 
as I mentioned to you before we started recording, I was really inspired, intrigued by what you write about the intersection between Christianity and culture, which is a topic that's important to Sayers, it's important to Lewis, uh, Eliot writes about it, um, and it's completely relevant today, um, makes her, her work seem all the more timely. As I was reading your book, it kind of reminded me of Chad Walsh's early study of Lewis, uh, one of the first studies while Lewis is still alive, called Apostle to the Skeptics. Right. But I think that you make a real convincing case that we could maybe consider, I don't know, uh, Dorothy Sayers is maybe the apostle to the disaffected? Yes. The apostle to ex-evangelicals or the deconstructed? Reflect a little bit about what Sayers has to tell us about the intersection between culture, engagement, creativity, and a vibrant, honest faith, especially in the climate that we're in. Right. Um, how timely is she today? Yes. Well, one of the things that she dealt with, as I already explained in the Man Born to be King controversy, is how Christians, it's so easy for them to fall into idolatry. And I grew up in a fundamentalist family where there would be this uh, repudiation. Oh, Roman Catholic churches have statues of Mary in them. Those are yeah. idols. And it wasn't until I started reading Sayers and also encountering other Protestant traditions, I realized that in my life, I had made words idols. As mm. long as you say these exact words, you're going to heaven. Mm -hmm. And so it turns it into kind of like abracadabra language. If you speak yes. this language, you get heaven in return, which totally obviates the essential message of Christianity that, that distinguishes it from all other religions, that it is a gift. Yeah. And it's a matter, belief is just ma a matter of believing you've been offered a gift, mm -hmm. which you have to do. If you don't even believe you've been offered a gift, how can you accept it? Yeah. So yeah. Sayers felt very strongly about this too. Again, growing up, the, the daughter of rector where so many people saw Christianity, like most religions in terms, you go through these rituals, you go through these rites, you say these words, mm -hmm. and you get salvation in exchange. Mm -hmm. And she totally subverts that thinking. Mm -hmm. But then I didn't plan on this, but because of where our culture was going, I wrote a whole chapter called The Politics of Religion and the Religion of Politics and how she would just be appalled how today many people, rather than saying for me to live is Christ, they would say for me to live is my party's political platform and I use Christ as a prop to hold mm -hmm. it up. Mm -hmm. which of course is, is yes. heresy. So she can speak to that. And what's interesting in this Man Born to be King, this collection of plays that was so important to C.S. Lewis and that we just um, published this annotated edition, yeah. is that she shows, and this is her brilliance, she shows it happening on both the right and the left. Mm -hmm. In terms yes. of the people who crucified Jesus, it mm -hmm. was both the leftist zealots, but mm -hmm. also the rightist um, Caiaphas, who's trying to preserve the status quo. Yeah. And it, Sayers is not about preserving the status quo. It's about following Jesus. And part of mm -hmm. why Jesus got crucified is he refused to mm -hmm. just endorse the status quo, of course. Mm -hmm. And if we're followers of Christ, 
that's what we should be doing as well. Yeah. And yeah. so I start the whole subversive book saying that she would understand the nuns of today, you know, N-O-N-E-S, mm-hmm. these younger generations that check, they have no religion. My religion is none. Mm-hmm. And she would understand them. And that's what I wanted my book to speak yeah. to both the parents as well as the young people. I just read a statistic that said uh, millennials on younger are leaving the church by a mm-hmm. million a year. Mm-hmm. A million mm-hmm. a year. Mm-hmm. Sayers can speak to those people because she uses different language. Mm-hmm. And yeah. this is why... David and I accepted the job to be at the Wade Center. There's a lot of those people who, like Sayers, are kind of disgusted with Christianity. But today, they still read Tolkien. Yeah. They read yeah. Lewis. Yeah. How can the Wade help people mm-hmm. recognize that a Christian worldview can be presented in different language? Yeah. So Tolkien, Lewis, most of our authors, definitely Sayers, they uh, repudiate the idolatry of language. Yeah, no, without any question. And uh, part of the reason that Lewis is my master and part of the reason that he will play an important part in my priesthood is because he becomes a shorthand to the gospel Yes, and a relevant presentation of it. And I think what your book does is add another tool to that um, to that arsenal, because she too is a shorthand to cutting through yes. some of the the nonsense and the nightmare between us and the gospel. Kind of one last one last idea before we wrap up. And I love what you said about idolatry. Um, Kate Sonderager, the theologian who is one of my mentors at, at Virginia Seminary, has written in her systematic theology about idolatry as a very going present concern. In our culture, idolatry is one of the one of the the dangers and the evils that we're falling into. And we've talked on this show often about Lewis's essay, First and Second Things, which you can see played out in our political situation. We're taking a second thing and making it a first. Yes. And then, of course, we've had Jerry on, and Matt in particular loves his idea of all reality is iconoclastic. Mm. And I wonder, as you're talking, I, I scribbled something down and I can't wait to, to follow up on it because I think that what we need maybe is not so much iconoclasm because an icon doesn't need to be shattered. Mm-mm. Icons are what Lewis and Tolkien and Sayers and all the rest are creating. I think what we need is idolaclasm. Yes. Right? We need to shatter the idolatry and see the idolatry in our own lives and in our culture. And again, I encourage our listeners to to read your book the way that she's grappling with this Jesus and this false image of Jesus that has crept into the milk toast faith uh, in mid-century England. And I can see how she's part of the mix for Lewis creating this Aslan who is not a tame lion, right? Right. And Jesus slips out of our ga- grasp every time we think that we, that we have it. So as we wrap up, um, and <laughs> every single one of the questions that I had, we've touched on, and every single one of them we could have gone an hour on. And yes. so I'm just, I'm so grateful that you're here. As we encourage our readers to kind of step into Sayers, how might listeners approach Sayers? What's a handhold? How to get in there? Where should we start? Uh, I've already mentioned several times, Man Born to be King. Uh, your books, certainly, for listeners who have or have access to Lewis's little book on stories, there's a panegyric to uh, Dorothy yes. L. Sayers. Panegyric is like a, a eulogy. He writes right. it after her death and he praises her. 
he calls attention to her note on the Divine Comedy. You mentioned the the volume that they um, that they collaborated on, essays presented to Charles Williams, and that's published in forty seven. That has Tolkien's essay on fairy stories, mm. Lewis writing on stories. Um, so it's in some ways the manifesto of the mythopaic modernists that were in right. Oxford. So apart from those, where should we start if we're going to pick up one or two or three? I'll give you one per genre because she wrote so so many. <laughs> yeah. If you one per two or three genres. So if we're going to start in the detective fiction, where should we start? If we're going to start spirituality, where should we start? How can where's the first stop for our listeners on Sayers? Well, as a literary scholar, my PhD is in English. Mm -hmm. I find it fascinating to read chronologically to see the development of Sayers' own thinking, and because. I see it as God nudging her towards a position where she is going to change culture, where she's going to influence C.S. Lewis. So I would start with the first novel, and which she basically wrote in order to make money. And remind us the title of that again. It's called Whose Body? Whose Body? With a question mark, right? Right. And then just, you know, read them chronologically. Different people have a different assessment of what her best um, detective novel is. Most say Gaudy Knight. And mm -hmm. once again, the title of my book, Subversive, Sayers even subverts the detective fiction genre. And here mm -hmm. she is, the president of the London yeah. Detection Society, which is yeah. the detection club, excuse me, which is very, you know, you had to be specially invited. Um, and she writes a detective novel with no dead body in it. <laughs> and the real mystery is it's about a woman who goes back to a reunion at Oxford University. And so mm -hmm. she's addressing many of the issues that have obsessed her. So whose body to start with and maybe Gaudy yeah. Knight shortly thereafter in terms of the plays, Zeal of Thy House or Man Born to be King? Which should we pick? Oh, definitely Man Born to be King. Man Born to be King. And it almost needs several readings because we are so familiar with the Bible stories. The first time I read it, I thought, well, what's so controversial about this? But you have, because she presents the gospel message, you know, the, mm -hmm. the miracles of Jesus, she just contextualizes them. Um, and we're so used to, we have multiple translations of scripture. So we don't have that impediment of language, but she's still doing some subversive stuff. For instance, she makes Judas the most intelligent disciple who recognizes that Jesus, Jesus's mission was to lay down his life. Mm -hmm. You know, mm. now mm. that shocked people, but that's interesting to trace it. Why does she do that? You know, before, and, but she follows the gospel message, you know, in terms of Ju Judas betraying Jesus, but then she wants us to think, well, why? And she actually says in a letter, if Judas was obviously evil, either it turns Jesus into someone naive who didn't recognize his evil, or it makes him manipulative. Oh, I got to get an evil person to join yeah. the disciples. <laughs> well, and the reaction of the disciples at the Last Supper, when he said, one of you will betray me, it is not yeah. obvious to any of them. Yeah, I know. So man born to the be king you know, read through those plays. And then there is, um, Mind of the Maker is more difficult. Um, okay. But for anybody interested in creativity, 
uh, I definitely recommend it. Mm-hmm. There is a great little book mm-hmm. called Creator Chaos, uh-huh. and those are her best essays. And okay. you'll get her humor. You'll get um, why C.S. Lewis loved her if you read her essays in the book titled Creed or Chaos. Great. And then, of course, Barbara Reynolds has uh, done some work on her letters, which might be a good place to start as well, I think, uh, if you like that genre. Yeah, Barbara Reynolds collected letters, so, but left out some important ones. Yeah. But Barbara Reynolds has a good biography of Dorothy Sayers. Okay, good. And I recommend that. Wonderful. Boy, what a, what a fantastic hour. And I, I'm so grateful to um, not only to have this episode and be able to do this interview, especially as I start my Sayers work. I'm going to be thinking through some of those things as I write my, my Sayers stuff. So I'm grateful to you. Want to mention just quickly, Sayers did a famous translation of, of Dante. Yes. And it was published in Penguin. You can find it cheap in any used bookstore. Yes. So if you want to read the Divine Comedy, that's one of the one of the places to start too. Well, Dr. Crystal Downing, thank you so much for coming on the show. As our landlord rings the bell for final drinks, can you please tell us where people can go to find more about you and to pick up a copy of Subversive, Christ, Culture, and the shocking Dorothy L. Sayers? The best place to go is the Wade Center uh, website. So just type in Wade Center Wheaton and you'll get to our website and, you know, just follow the, the links and you could even email the Wade Center and say, I want to buy a copy of this book. How do I do that? And we'll just walk you through it. If they email the Wade Center and they send you send out a copy, is there a chance you might sign it? Oh, I'll definitely, I'll definitely sign it. And I'm going to write this down. Anybody who listens to this podcast and then uh-huh. writes the Wade Center, I will provide you a 10% discount on the price of the book. Ooh, wonderful. Wonderful. Can't wait. Both that and The Man Born to Be King. I'll give you a 10% discount. Oh, wow. Listeners, there we go. Fantastic. Well, I'm packing mine in my luggage. I'm planning a trip, maybe one or two weeks of my vacation time, sometime perhaps this summer, to go back to the Wade Center. I think it's my longest stretch without being there since 1997. And I just ache every day not to to be in that good place. And so, well, thanks again to Dr. Crystal Downing for coming on the show. Kudos to her. Greetings to uh, her husband, David C. Downing, and of course, to all at the Wade, including the beloved Marge Mead and Laura Schmidt and Sean Rakovich and everybody else. Thanks again to all of our listeners, our Patreon supporters who bought me the books and I didn't even need the discount. (laughs) And we particularly thank our top tier supporters, including Steve and Matt, Jake and Erica, Marvin, Joel, Deborah, number one, we're still looking for two and three. Amanda, Thomas, Bill, Joanna, Bud, Shane, and Kay, Paul and Kimberly, Gillis and Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly and Chris, James, Kate, Peter, David, Angela, and Rowdy. As always, we pray for our listeners and we pray for all of the prayer requests in our, from our Slack channel every Tuesday. If you've enjoyed this episode, please not only tell a friend, but plan a visit to the Wade Center. And... Please join us next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>